Welcome to the DTB podcast for volume 52, number 9, September 2014. My name is David Fizakli, I'm DTB's deputy editor. And I'm James Cave, I'm editor in chief. We start this month looking at the editorial, which explores some of the changes to the National Confidential Inquiry into Maternal Deaths. Now, this whole process has undergone some major changes over the last few years. Um, James, I wonder if you want to explain a bit about what's the new process and what's it called? Poor old confidential inquiry into maternal deaths has gone through sort of, I don't know, four or five changes uh, since 1999. So NICE has looked after it for a while and uh, the National Patient Safety Agency has looked after it for a while. And it is now called EMBRACE. And EMBRACE stands for Mothers and Babies Reducing Risk Through Audits and Confidential Inquiries Across the UK. So quite a mouthful, but it's uh, EMBRACE UK now. And that process is looking into deaths of mothers from what stage of pregnancy? So this is the continuation of the old confidential inquiry, which goes way back into the late 19th century. And it's, it's quite a unique activity that's been looking at any death of a mother from beginning of pregnancy right the way up to birth and on for a further 12 months. So it looks at the perinatal, neonatal and infant level. So it's really, it's a very broad brief. Okay, and who's involved with this process? Well, Embrace is a collaboration uh, uh, from the National Perinatal Epidemiological Unit in Oxford. There are some universities involved GPs um, and the SANS charity as well. So it's quite a broad brief of, of people. And the concerns that we raise are focused on the fact that there has been this enormous amount of change over the last few years. So let's hope the process is safeguarded. But in itself, the whole concept of confidential inquiries and change resulting from that has made some difference to how mothers and babies are looked after. Well, this is it. I mean, there have been people who've been critical of it because it's sort of not really peer reviewed and there's sort of not it's not an evidence based process but at the same time it has been responsible for some major changes in the way women are treated both in the way we assess risk for dangers during labor but also actual uh, therapeutic action that's taken so for example changes in the management of third stage of labor uh, thromboprophylaxis in delivery those sorts of big big changes have occurred largely because of the activity of the confidential inquiry so what's our major concern why are we featuring this as well i think i say a to to raise the issue that actually i think a lot of people remember and know about the confidential inquiry into maternal deaths and what we're saying here is you won't find it there anymore it's now embrace the other concern we have is the last time they reported was in 2011 and that was on deaths three years prior to that so there actually has been quite a long gap between their last uh, report and the current current date so we're really anxious that they should uh, get on to reporting and perhaps be more timely in their reporting as well okay so the system we haven't got any criticism yet of the system but we'd like to see more timely uh, more data appear more timely and to be published more regularly exactly right okay thank you Our first article this month looks at yet another drug for MS. We seem to have uh, hit a patch of new drugs for MS. This is the third oral drug license, dimethyl fumarate, licensed for relapsing remitting multiple sclerosis. Uh, It joins fingolimod and teriflunamide, and we looked at teriflunamide a few months ago. So what's this one about? A new new product, a new entity? Well, it's it's a sort of... um 
it's a change on quite an old entity. There's been a drug called Fumaderm, which has been used in Germany for the treatment of psoriasis now for about a decade. And dimethyl fumarate is an ester of fumaric acid, which is the principal uh, drug in fumaderm. So uh, it's it's been around, but it's the first. Uh, this has now been licensed for the management of relapsing remitting MS. Okay, and the evidence base that we draw on. Um, Phase three studies, two key papers we look at, comparators in those? Yeah, so these are two randomized control trials, define and confirm, and one is a, a placebo-controlled trial, and the other is one of these uh, active comparator studies, which is, so so they actively compare it with another drug called glatiramer. Uh, and a placebo. So it's one of these difficult studies because it's not really a comparative study as such. It's not like a randomized control trial, one drug versus the other. They basically test the drug, a comparator, and a placebo, and then look at the difference in between their activities, if that makes but sense. But the statistical analysis is between dimethyl fumarate and placebo, Precisely. not dimethyl fumarate and glutyramine. That's exactly the that's exactly the issue here. So the, the the problem is people might think, oh, so they've compared it with this drug, but they haven't. It's just a comparator. So there's no statistical ability to be able to really say whether this drug outcompetes or not the other. Okay. So taking those trials, looking at what we would normally want to compare, let's look at benefits to start with. What did it do? So there, there were sort of two major benefits they were looking at. One was the relapse rate. Uh, and there was definitely uh, an improvement in relapse rate in the patients given the active drug. So there was about a 27% uh, incidence of a relapse in the two years of the study in those taking dimethyl fumarate and about a 47% uh, relapse rate in those on placebo. So that's quite a significant difference with the numbers needed to treat to prevent a relapse of about five. So treat five people for two years and you prevent one relapse. Exactly right. But there was no difference in the long-term function between the placebo group and the treatment group. So although this drug prevents relapses, actually it doesn't seem to have any impact on your long-term functioning. So short-term, you got some sort of benefit after 12 weeks. There was a difference between um, disability scores in people at 12 weeks but that was not maintained at six months that's right that's right so it's a it's a difficult one here because whilst you may be showing that there's a, a slight well, there's a quite a considerable reduction in relapse rate at the end of of the study there was no difference in how good your functioning was compared to placebo okay and harms what were the key harms the classic things were flushing a, a lot of patients well, I say a lot it's about um i think it was about a 16% instance of flushing or um gi symptoms such as diarrhea vomiting those sorts of side effects okay and cost 18000 pounds a year so that's um, its list price that's its list price we now, know that in Scotland it's been accepted under a patient access scheme with a negotiated price discount. We don't know what the level of that discount is. And NICE are going through the same discussion, so we may we may see something similar here, but we don't actually know what price it's being sold at. Exactly right. Okay. And that is for a drug, remember, that the EMA, the European Medicines Agency, have decided isn't a disease-modifying drug because it had no impact on disability. They're saying this is not modifying your disease. It's just basically preventing relapses. 
So the interesting question now is we have five, possibly five, six drugs that you can use for MS, three injectables, three drugs that you can take orally, but we've got no direct head-to-head comparisons of any of them. Well, this is it. This is the, the sort of slightly crazy situation we find ourselves in. So we, we can't say to a patient, well, this drug will be better than that drug. So there's a convenience aspect of these new oral drugs. We don't need injections, simpler to give, obviously simpler to take. But evidence-wise, nothing really to direct us, other than we have far more experience with the injectables because they've been around for much, much longer. Exactly, yeah. So difficult one. Difficult one for people to um, make a decision on. Um, encouraging that there's new new interventions, but uh, at the moment we can't make strong recommendations either way. It, well, it precisely, and I think if you take the £18,000 a year, remember that we've got to treat five people for two years to prevent one relapse. We're talking about... 100000 uh, Yes, to prevent a relapse. It's, it's an expensive drug. OK, thank you very much. And our second article this month looks at faecal calprotectin testing, which is relatively new introduction in terms of a diagnostic test. Uh, so we've put together an explanatory article trying to explain how it is used, what it's used for. So perhaps start with some basics. What is faecal calprotectin? Yeah, so so this is a protein that's uh, released from uh, neutrophils uh, in the bowel in response to inflammation. So the idea behind it is that if people have got an inflammatory bowel disorder, they will release faecal calprotectin into their um, gut and that will be able to be tested for in your stools. And the great thing about this test is that it's a very stable test. Um, You can keep a stool specimen for a week and you'll still be able to test it for faecal calprotectin, although the lab may not. Thank you for that. Yes, indeed. It comes up some images. <laughs> so we've got, we've got a test that tells you something about the site of the inflammation, but not the cause. Precisely. So it, where, what, what's really at the moment? We've got, got a patient who you're investigating. They've got some symptoms. You're wondering whether it's irritable bowel or whether there's an inflammatory element to it. What would you do at the moment? Yeah, so current practice, remember, and NICE brought some guidelines out, and we've got um, a lot of uh, international sort of guidance, too, on irritable bowel syndrome and remember the idea behind this is that you rule out with red flags things such as bowel cancer and then really if people fulfill the Rome criteria so they've had recurrent abdominal pain for at least three days a month for at least three months with associated other symptoms then what we're always advised is as GPs is you should feel confident to call that irritable bowel syndrome and manage them. The problem is there are some patients who just you worry about, perhaps you've done an ESR or CRP and found that's raised, and you think, oh, I'd better just refer them up to see the gastroenterologist and get them to check them out. And the problem with that is that there's quite a high false uh, referral rate, about, uh, is it, remind me, about 20%, 20%. I think, isn't it, we felt that, so 20% of patients referred up to, to the GI team with concerns by GPs turn out still just to have irritable bowel syndrome rather than So if you use the current standard of, of ESR or C-reactive protein tests, you will end up sending a sizable number of people who get investigated further who wouldn't otherwise need it. And the idea behind this faecal cow protecting test is that it's more discriminatory. Well, it's, it's more... So the thing about calprotectin is it's got a very good negative predictive value. So if it's negative, 
there's a 98% chance that that patient doesn't have inflammatory bowel disease. So if you use this test rather than the current standards, you will stop a certain group or certain proportion of people going on for further testing who otherwise wouldn't have needed it. That's it. And I think what, what the guidelines are saying is don't use this as a screening tool. Don't do it on everyone. There are those patients who've got red flag symptoms or a barn dawn inflammatory bowel disease. Refer those patients anyway. Those likewise who you're quite happy and sure have got irritable bowel syndrome, you do a faecal calprotectin on. But those patients who in the past you would have thought, I'm not sure I'm going to refer them, at that point, do the faecal calprotectin. And if it's negative, you can be reassured that actually you don't need to refer them. And the test itself can be done in a lab, can be done point of care, so you can do it as a desktop, or you can even do it as a sort of disposable test which you just read from the test itself. In practice, what do, in your area, is it, is it a lab-based test? For us, it's a lab-based test, um, but the studies seem to show that really they are all as good as each other when it comes to their predictive values. So, um, you know, you can pay your money and takes your choice. And in terms of service change, because if we're used to doing a certain way of investigating patients, here we've got a new test, what are the implications for local services in terms of education uh, implementation of the new testing processes, communication, is that likely to be an issue? It's possibly because, first of all, this in, in the pilot where they've been very clear for the criteria of how it should be used, they've demonstrated big savings because you don't end up having all these extra unnecessary endoscopies. The problem is that it costs £25, so if you start doing more than you would have previously done, of course, the whole cost balance just goes out the window. So there is something about making sure that you check what the sort of algorithms are for your local uh, departments. GI consultants will have a part to play in all that and make sure it all sort of works together, really. And stick to the defined criteria rather than as we always do in medicine expanding expanding and testing more, more people because we can exactly okay thank you very much um, and just a couple of items from select this month i thought we couldn't let the new nice af guidance go particularly its implications around anticoagulation um, key message appears to be assess people for their level of risk of stroke and chad vask seems to be the the preferred scoring system yeah at the same time assess them for risk of bleeding and has bled is the uh, tool for for doing that but then once you've defined people as needing an intervention to reduce their risk of stroke it's anticoagulation all the way now that's right there's there's aspirin is basically out there's the feeling is we should not be using aspirin at all so you assess their risk I'm always slightly anxious about NICE because it asks us to use these risk assessment tools. And, of course, these risk assessment tools will give us a percentage risk. But it never suggests that we might discuss that with our patients and, and actually discuss with them what level of risk they consider to be OK for them. But anyway, that's, that's perhaps an, an aside. But, yeah, so we should be assessing their risks, then simply suggesting anticoagulation. And that should either be good old-fashioned vitamin K antagonist, warfarin, or the new no acts, so that's apixaban, dabigatran, or rivaroxaban. And NICE really makes absolutely no differentiation between one or t'other. So it's not steering one way or the other. And I think with this guidance, there's also a patient decision aid to help talk through with patients the options of those 
different interventions. So the benefits of warfarin and the benefits of the newer anticoagulants. So you can work through and see what's important to patients. Yeah, exactly. In fact, a top tip here is, as a clinician, sometimes keeping up with all nice guidance is very tough, but actually every nice guidance now does have a patient decision aid and usually a patient sort of descriptive um, article. And it's very useful sometimes with some patients who just say suggest that they look at it and then come back and tell you what you should be doing. Uh, and that often actually makes for a much more healthy relationship and actually better medicine sometimes. And the one interesting nuance from this particular piece of guidance seems to be around assessing patients who are on warfarin for the level of efficiency of the warfarin so how long or for how much time do they spend in the therapeutic range and this measure of time spent in the therapeutic range is now becoming something that we should be monitoring and measuring and assessing people in order to make a decision about whether the warfarin is appropriate for them yeah absolutely so this is a new three-letter acronym therapeutic time in the therapeutic range TTR and the feeling is that uh, we should look at that and assess it and if it's less than 65% we should be reconsidering our anticoagulation choice. And presumably based on the fact that in some of the studies people who had a high TTR there was not much difference to choose between outcomes between warfarin and the newer drugs however when you start to lose or to get a lower level of TTR, then perhaps the newer agents have a better outcome. Absolutely. I mean, the big multi-centred trials that compared warfarin with the new NOACs in a non-inferiority study, the non-inferiority studies, the, the big ones there, the warfarin tended to hover around 65, 50 to 65% therapeutic range. So once the warfarin levels drop to a lower level than that, then it may well be that the NOACs are running at a better, more effective level. But this whole process of, of keeping an eye on the TTR and doing a, a six-monthly or annual review of it is is going to be new for lots of people. It, uh, absolutely. And I think, I don't know what the support would be like uh, around the country, but obviously I think it either requires GPs to look back on their own IT systems to see what's been going on with the INR over the last six months or a year, or it requires the uh, anticoagulation clinics to provide some sort of details about that. So it does require a bit of tinkering to make sure that is available for the clinician managing this. Okay. And the last item that just caught our eye was this study from America, which looked at what happens to patients when you change the appearance or colour of their medication. And they took a cohort of people who'd had an MI, looked at their use of medication, and then related that back to whether they'd had a change in the either the, the color of the medicine or, or the shape of the medicine. Typically, we see this when brands, people change from a brand to a generic, or even with generics themselves, because different generics do not have to be of the same appearance. So the same drug does not need to look the same if it's made by company X or company Y. So what they looked at was was how people responded to that and what, what did they find? So what they found was was roughly about 10% of people um, who stopped taking their medication, there was some association with either the colour of um, the drug or the shape had changed. So about, um, I say, about 4% of cases it was thought that the 
colour change was associated with stopping the drug and about 5% of cases, the shape change had been associated with it. And I suppose, you know, you could say, well, this is one of those articles for the Journal of the Blindingly Obvious, because it, but, but I think it, it has got significant issues for us, you know, with the constant drive to reduce the cost of drugs. Um, often generic uh, supply is switched around by pharmacies and dispensing doctors, and I think that does have an impact as this shows, on actual concordance with patients. And of course, the obvious answer is, OK, well, let's make the manufacturers make everything have to conform to a standard. So every generic simvastatin has to look the same as every other generic simvastatin with perhaps an indicator of the manufacturer on it. But that's not going to happen. It, it's not going to happen, is it? No. And, and, uh, so, and I think... I don't know. I think this is. I think this is just a wake-up call. I think. I suspect that if if pharmacists and GPs uh, were more aware of this information and just made sure patients were aware of it and advised them this wasn't an issue, and if they had concerns to raise it with the pharmacist, I suspect that number might drop. So it's it's, it's something that we should be building regularly into our practice. That when you see a patient and talk to them about other medicines raise the issue that things will, may look different from month to month and particularly highlight when you have made a change so that they're not taken by surprise. Precisely. Absolutely right. Okay. Thank you very much. Have to read these and any of our articles, please visit dtb.pmj.com. Thank you very much for listening. And if you've got any comments or suggestions, please email dtbeditor at pmj.com. <laughs>